If you're not willing to learn and not willing to be the dumbest guy in the room, I kind of feel like you have no sense in being an investor. Welcome to the Off Record Podcast with your host, Corey Levy, where we uncover the hidden, behind-the-scenes thoughts and actions of successful people. Today, we speak to venture capitalist, actor, entrepreneur, and philanthropist, Ashton Kutcher, who has famously transitioned from a successful A-list actor to starting venture capital firms, A-grade investments, and sound ventures, with a portfolio including Spotify, Uber, Airbnb, and many more. Alongside, he has founded non-profit foundation, Thorn which drives technology innovation to fight the sexual exploitation of children. In this week's episode, Ashton talks about how he transitioned from acting to tech, what he learned from working with some of the world's best entrepreneurs and investors, his insights into the future of jobs and a reflection on his teenage years and more. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Off Record. Thank you, Ashton, for joining on the show today. I want to start by asking you, how did you get into technology and what was the transition like going from Hollywood to Silicon Valley? I think I got into technology really, I think, from a a consumer perspective first. I was running a production company that I'd started when I was like 20 and we were producing television shows. We had a show called Punked and another show called Beauty and the Geek and couple movies that we were producing and I, I started seeing like buffering speeds on the web getting faster and faster. And I was convinced that all content was going to be digital content. And this is probably 10, 11 years ago or something. And I think I was convinced of it, but I think it was probably a little early at the time. And I decided that I was, I wanted to pivot my entire production company towards producing digital content and decided to take a pretty big bet on it. And I was convinced that we could basically hack together high quality distribution and in some way, shape or form, like quantify creativity and be able to determine determine whether or not something was going to perform well on digital distribution before we produced it or as we were producing it. And so I started looking for a bunch of different tools that would allow us to do that, whether it was just measuring our distribution, you know, tools that we could use to increase our distribution, to get our content spread on many different platforms at one time. And as I started to do that, I started to interact with some pretty brilliant people that were in the space that were creating these things, one of which was uh, Max Levkin, who had a company at the time called Slide. And he he had a similar penchant for quantifying creativity. And and then I I had uh, a woman that was working with me. Her name was Sarah Ross. I met her at TechCrunch. And she put together the first TechCrunch 50 for Michael Arrington. And she started introducing me to all these different tech companies, uh, software mostly, that I thought were really interesting, but were kind of outside of the scope of what I was doing at my production company. And so I started investing as an individual uh, in, in those companies, just small check size. And it turns out several of those companies were some of the early successes at the time. And it was like companies like Foursquare and uh, group me and just a bunch of different little things that I was like, wow, that's a really interesting tool. This is a really interesting tool. And then I, I got to know, uh, Mark Andreessen a little bit and he encouraged me to invest in Skype as they were selling it from eBay. And so I did that. And at a certain, after a little while, I, I realized I was pretty good at this, but I was also starting to run out of money uh, to invest. <laughs> uh, and, but I had, I definitely had like a pension for it. And then I started using Twitter and, and raced CNN 
10 to a million followers. And at that point, I realized the amount of value that I could add to a company um, just by leveraging my personal profile on behalf of it. Now, I wasn't an investor in Twitter. and At no point in time was I an investor in Twitter. I had no stock in it. But I retroactively looked at that event and went, wait a second, I could add a lot of value to these companies and just started putting my money where my mouth was and started really using all the products that I was investing in. And that's when I hooked up with my partner, Gaio Siri, and we teamed up with Rob. Berkeley and started our first fund, A-grade. Very cool. And congratulations on everything so far. And, and you mentioned that, that you invested in Foursquare and GroupMe and Airbnb and Skype and you got to know Mark and Dreesen. What would you say you've learned from some of the entrepreneurs and venture capitalists that you've worked with? I would say that I learn something from every entrepreneur that I work with. And in fact, it's, it's almost one of my investing principles. Like if I don't feel like I can learn something from a person I'm investing in, I really won't invest in them. In fact, I've learned, I didn't invest in your first company company that you sent me. But I've learned from listening to you uh, in several of the things that you've done. One of the things you said is that that always sticks in my mind. I repeat it all the time to people. Is if, if, if you want money, ask for advice. If you want advice, ask for money. But I feel like every interaction that you have in this space, especially because the people who are building a lot of these companies are some of the most brilliant people in the world. And I just feel like every at every turn, there's an opportunity to learn something from someone. You know, one of my early investments is in a company called Path, Dave Morin. And Dave's probably taught me more about product than anybody could learn in any school, just spending time with him and thinking about product and grinding on small product decisions. I've learned about scaling companies. I've learned, I mean, like at the time, I had to learn the difference between like gross revenue, net revenue. I've learned, I, like I've learned all, everything that I know about business on the fly uh, from the people I've worked with. Um, and and they're just like constant, beautiful pearls of wisdom. People I've learned the most from, Ron Conway has been a mentor of mine from the get-go. He was the first person who, I think he just took me seriously and realized the value I could add and would recommend me to entrepreneurs as, as an investor. And, and still today, even you know, on a regular basis, if I have a question about something, I go to Ron and you know he, he usually fills me in. You know, if, if you're not willing to learn and not willing to be the dumbest guy in the room. I kind of feel like you have no sense in being an investor because that's pretty much the magic of it. Right. right. And right now, what would you say some of the, I guess, which rooms are you entering? Where are you the dumbest person in the room? Are there different new industries or trends that you're trying to learn a lot about right now? If you're going to go meet with an entrepreneur and they're not smarter than you about the thing that they're tackling, it's probably not a very good investment because you know one of the things that every entrepreneur has to have is some deep domain expertise in whatever it is that they're pursuing. And if they don't have that, then they're probably not a good investment. So, so you should be the dumbest person in the room on that topic. You know, the, the latest thing that I've really started to kind of dig on is autonomous vehicles. I think that the writing's pretty much on the wall in that space. It's going to happen. Regulation's starting to lean in that direction. The technology exists between LIDAR and radar and machine vision and battery power over time. So I think electrical, electric autonomous vehicles are going, it's sort of like, a you know, we're going to be at level five before we know it and they're going to be everywhere. And so I spent a lot of the summer, I was in Budapest where my wife was shooting a film and I was on stay at home dad duty. But while I was there, 
I found a couple really interesting companies that are over there that are in that space. And so I just decided to spend the summer diving deep on autonomous vehicles and learning as much as I could about it and where the you know potential edges are and who can be the winners and who won't be the winners. And that's been my latest adventure. Very cool. And what are some ineffective things that you see people do spend too much time thinking about that aren't necessarily important? I think people, I think one of the biggest traps of early stage, of people that are building companies in the early stage is they think about marketing and branding and PR way too early. Generally, if, if you're thinking about marketing and branding and trying to grow through marketing and branding and PR really early on in your life cycle, it's indicative of not having your product right, especially on the software side. Like If you have a great product and you've found a perfect consumer product fit, the company will grow itself, at least to the point, it'll grow itself into maturity. And then once you have that flywheel turning, then you can accelerate it with marketing and branding. But a, a lot of times people don't quite have product market fit nailed yet. And then they try to do marketing marketing and branding and PR in order to boost their user growth. And it's usually the wrong strategy. And you end up spending a lot of money that you shouldn't spend on something that you shouldn't be spending it on. And I guess one question I have is some of the companies that you've invested in have been a part of some sort of controversy. They've, they've sort of moved technology forward, whether that be Airbnb with letting people rent out their own homes. What's something controversial today that, that you think won't be tomorrow? Well, I think autonomous vehicles is something that's it's going to be controversial. The first person as people start to die in autonomous vehicles and that's gonna happen um the question is going to become whose fault is it and is it the company's fault or is it you know that's going to become very controversial but at the end of the day you know for every accident that will happen in an autonomous vehicle all the vehicles will get smarter uh as a result and therefore collectively will have far fewer accidents and deaths uh, from automobiles but that's going to become very controversial I, I think there's no question about that uh, and and then, and then it won't be controversial because you just won't have autonomous vehicles having accidents. So that's one thing. I think that there's, I think the whole space of CRISPR and gene therapy, we've kind of watched that go through a life cycle where, you know, the unknown of gene manipulation became a very scary regulated uh, thing. Um, and I think gradually that's going to, we're going to, we're going to push up against that because there's going to be solutions for many diseases on the planet that are going to come through gene therapy that are that it's just going to be undeniable. And so I think that might be one of the biggest questions of the next like 30, 40 years is, you know, how far into playing God are we before we call it playing God? I think that these, these therapies are going to be absolutely revolutionary, but at the same time, they're going to come at certain costs and we're going to have gigantic questions about creating designer human beings that are going to be big, giant topical issues that are, are going to be tough. If, you know, there's a couple great books. Um, Sapiens is a great great book. And then Homo Deus is the sort of follow up to that, that, you know, if you want to sort of look at like the real moral fabric, <laughs> that's going to come up with those issues of like, you know, consumption of animals, how we're treating other animals on earth, and then all the way down to how we're treating other humans on earth that are non modified humans. You know, right now, there's a big debate about GMOs, which in some ways, I think is a little bit silly. But I think that GMO is going to take on a whole new meaning when the GMO is the human being itself. Um, so if people are having issues with genetically modified plants today, how, how are people going to deal with genetically modified human beings? Um, and the various classifiers of like, are we going to have to have like a, 
a different Olympics for genetically modified human beings than, than what we have for non-genetically modified human beings. There's going to be some funny stuff that comes up around that that's going to be really controversial. And it's all going to play out in our lifetime. It's going to be really interesting to watch. Yeah, it's going to be super interesting. And how, how should entrepreneurs deal with this, these types of controversies? Do you think you should shy away from it, seek it, or just not back away when it, when it comes up? I mean, I think if it's not a little bit scary, it's not that interesting. You kind of have to sort of put a foot on one side of the line or the other. Like take Airbnb, for example, right? Like what's the risk reward on renting out your home, right? So from a regulatory perspective, you know, it's the, the people are like, well, you have to make sure that the people that are staying there are safe. But at the same time, you go, well, wait a second, you own that home, you own that place, you should be able to do with it what you want, right? And so there's, there's an ambiguity that comes with it. And you kind of have to put your foot on one side of the line or the other. And, you know, my personal foot is, I believe that people, for the most part, are good. And that, you know, a, it, you have to be a responsible organization and realize that they're good situations that aren't always going to go exactly the way that you want them to go and you have to you have to adjust for that and you have to you have to compensate for that but when you're first starting to build the company I, you know when Brian and Joe and Nate were first building Airbnb almost the naivete of how big that issue would become for them is the very thing that allowed them to grow in the way that they grew and you have to sort of push forward knowing that you as an organization are going to deal with that as it comes and as soon as you can you're going to get proactive about dealing with it and proactive about solving the problems that will come before they come. Um, and, and I think that that organization has done an incredible job of doing it. And I think that young entrepreneurs, you have to push and you can't negligently push going, yeah, there are people getting hurt, but so what? You have to push going, if someone gets hurt, this is what we're going to do. Or this is how we're going to build the product to straddle that and encourage that that doesn't happen. And part of it comes down to just being an ethical human being. I don't think Airbnb is hurting anyone. In fact, I think it's helping you know millions upon millions of people have a more free open lifestyle and helping them subsidize their income, which speaking of gigantic issues that we're going to have to deal with, you know, what do we do with employment when, when, when people, when there's so much employment displacement because of technologies that are being built, how do people sustain themselves? And I think products like Airbnb are a big part of the answer. The assets that you have, being able to use them and leverage them for income is going to be an important part of the answer to keeping a democracy alive inside of the, techno the technology revolution that's happening. Which jobs do you think won't be around in the next five, 10 years? One of the first major displacements is going to happen. I think it's obviously going to be like in the trucking space. Um, mm -hmm. I think before autonomous personal vehicles are out there, which ultimately I believe is going to be in the form of ride sharing because economically it's just going to be more feasible to not own a car, but rather ride share in an autonomous vehicle. But drivers are definitely, I think we're talking like five years and truck drivers are going to be really struggling to find employment in that space. Now, I think other jobs will be created as a result of technology that people can take, but that's definitely going to be, that's on, on the early docket. Uh, I think there's other simple things like sandwich making, right? Like I've, I've seen a bunch of different bots that are just straight up robots for making sandwiches. Sandwiches, whether it's burgers or spread sandwiches or whatever they might be, you know, and, and if you think about the bottom line for any restaurant in the food service industry, if you can get a bot to make the food, you reduce employment costs pretty drastically um, and the margins are much better, at which point in time you can afford to reemploy those people front of house, like actually in the service space more readily. So I, I think while some jobs are destroyed, the best companies will take those jobs that are 
you know, maker jobs, if you will, and turn them into service jobs where it's, you know, dealing where de dealing at the human touch points. And I think that's just probably the tip of the iceberg. You know, you look kind of across the entire accounting landscape and you go, well, most fintech jobs are repetitive and they can be aut autonomized. You know, any anything where, where you have people doing the same job every day, all day, repeating that same process, you can automate it. And if you kind of look across the landscape of jobs, that's most jobs. Going back to, you know, you putting your foot on one side that others may have strong opinions of, uh, you know, controversial things. Were there any moments in, in your early career where you had to uh, do things to, to grab people's attention or to, uh, I guess, when was the last time either, or when was the last time Ashton Kutcher had to put your foot on one side that other people disagreed with? Uh, yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, I think every day, you know, if you want to be an inquisitive, curious person that is touching the fringe of the future, I think you constantly have to exercise that part of your brain that plays both sides of the scenario as far as you can. My, my wife and I have been in a GMO conversation over the last six months. I went to school as a biochemical engineer. And so I ultimately, I wanted to become a geneticist because I, I felt that genetic modifications was right around the corner. Somebody told me when I was in high school that if I got a job in genetics, I would be able to work forever and make money and have a happy life. So I went to school for that. And I know fairly well the benefits of genetically modified plants. And the reason why we have enough food. Basically, we produce enough food for everyone to eat in large part is because of genetic modification. That one of the reasons why we have plants that are resistant to insects that are not naturally occurring insects in those particular environments is because of genetic modification. Um, and that you wipe out crops left and right if you can't deal with that. And with climate change and everything else that we all, for the most part, most people accept the science of climate change. There are a lot of people that are resistant to accepting the science of genetic modification. In large part, because Monsanto is seen as this sort of super gorilla negative company, because people don't trust the scientific studies that they've done around Roundup and glyphosate. So if you're making pesticide resistant crops through genetic modification and then dousing them in Roundup, the question is, are you really against the genetic modification or are you against this product that they're using as a pesticide because you believe that it's carcinogenic? Now, most studies have shown that it's not carcinogenic in doses that are that people actually consume and that it actually is processed by the body. But the question becomes, it's very similar in some ways to the vaccine debate where you look at it and you go, uh, okay, well, mercury as a preservative in vaccines isn't bad in single doses quantities, but when you start to compile them on multiple vaccines, it could have a negative effect. So then the same argument goes for glyphosate and, and Roundup, right? And now we don't know because I don't know what exactly what kind of tests have been done to what extent, but being willing to learn about it. But when you start to learn about it, you have to give yourself an, as, as informed of an opinion as you can to take the first step forward. And so my wife has been on one side of the argument, which is going, well, until we know more about genetically modified repercussions, should we really be consuming genetically modified things? And should we at least inform people about what they're consuming? And I stand on the other side of the argument saying, well, from what we do know, so far, it appears that it's okay. So why would we want to deter people from using a product that is benefiting the world? We kick it back and forth. And we both stand on either side of the argument. And, and But we have consistently, constantly have academic debates about it that, you know, sometimes we get heated with each other. And it's that 
that's okay. If you're going to move forward on the fringe, you have to decide which side you're going to be on. And that would be like kind of a prime example. Got it. Very cool. What were your teenage years like and what made you distinct as a teen? My teenage years. So I, when I was a sophomore in high school, I moved from what was a big city in Iowa, Cedar Rapids, to a small town. When my parents got divorced, my mom moved out into the country. And so I went from a school that had 300 kids in my graduating class to a school that had 52. Wow. And and I was, you know, a little upset about that and a little, you know, not happy. All my friends that I'd had from childhood, I was no longer with every day. And I was always somebody who had a hundred things going on from, you know, whether it was Boy Scouts or, you know, taking piano lessons or being in the choir or playing football or what I kind of I was sort of that guy and that guy didn't really have a place in this new little school like it was a little weird for people like you were either you either played football or you were in the choir you didn't do both and I was kind of the guy who just did both and then I went through like my full-blown rebellion year my senior year where I got put in jail for third degree burglary I decided I was going to break into my high school in the middle of <laughs> and uh, I got put felony charges against me for that so wow. it was sort of like I was actually academically inclined and I was a straight A student that was sitting in a jail cell. So wow. <laughs> that's that in some ways defines my teen years. Teen years. And do you think it's hundred percent necessary to go to college? I know you're a biomedical engineering student. I don't think it's hundred percent necessary. I think if, if you have a chosen vocation that requires college, for sure go to college. Like if you want to go into the medical field or you want to do something that is in that realm or something that requires some vocational education, I think for sure go to college. I think if you want to do something that doesn't require that, don't go get a job. But the worst thing you can do is not go get a job and not go to college, right? right. Like at a certain point, you have to like, you have to be in pursuit of something. Um, people without purpose will always struggle to find their way. And and sometimes if you don't have a purpose yet, the best thing you can do is just go try stuff. I kind of think that like, People that are in their 20s are great metaphors for young companies. And there's great advice that like, if you listen to like Reed Hoffman talk, there's great advice that he gives around to young entrepreneurs that are young founders with small companies. And, you know, he always talks about building the small companies, like jumping off a cliff and assembling the airplane on the way down. And a specific piece of advice that he makes is when you have a decision in front of you and you don't know what to do, it could be A or B, make the decision. Don't wait for more information in order to make the decision. Make the decision. Decision and then, but as a requirement of making the decision, write down the one or two things that you would have to see in order for you to change your mind. So if you're like, well, I kind of want to go into music, but I kind of want to go and start this company, and you don't know which one to do, just kind of pick the one where you're leaning the most or where most of your friends are recommending you to do it. And but then write down the couple things that you would have to see in order for you to change your mind about it. And that's okay. Like I feel like when people choose their major in college or choose their first job that they feel like they're somehow permanent. Like now you've decided what you want to be when you grow up. So you have to be responsible to that. I think it's crazy. And I, I think it comes from like our parents being like, well, if you're we're going to buy you a guitar, you're going to take those guitar lessons no matter what, or you can't quit soccer once you trip. Like, once you get a job, you can change jobs. I, I'm I'm a forty, almost a forty year old man, and I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. 
I'm an actor. I'm an actor some days. I'm an investor other days. I'm an entrepreneur other days. I'm a philanthropist on other days. And but and tomorrow, I might decide I don't want to do any of that and go do something. And that's okay. But as long as whatever it is that you're doing, you're doing with purpose, you're doing it full force, and you're doing it as if it's the last thing you're ever going to do. You have to do it like it's the last thing you're ever going to do. But it doesn't have to be the last thing you ever do. Love it. What's something you know you should do, but you haven't done yet? I can give you my 10-year docket of things I'm going to try to pull off. So I have to take something off of my list of the things I'm doing in order to do these things. But these are the things that I, I have an intention on doing in the next 10 years. Number one, I think that foster care in this country is really messed up. And I think that there's probably some, some relatively simple technology solutions that we can apply to that space that will help create massive efficiencies and improve that system drastically. So foster care is one thing that whether I do it or I work with an entrepreneur to do it or I work with my foundation to do it, uh, I want to get done. I think college debt is abominable. I actually think the entire college system should be restructured so that colleges basically only get paid a percentage of what you get paid after you graduate. So if they educate you and make you employable, then they should get paid. If they don't make you employable, they should not. Because right now there are a lot of people getting college degrees and things that don't make them employable. And I think that's an abomination. There's a great example of it. There's a, there's a company called Lambda that's a coding company that just came out of Y Combinator that's using that exact model, which is once you come out, they get a percentage of what you make over the next X number of years. And they're massively incentivized to actually make you employable. So I think that's a structural change that needs to happen. I also think that like there's these things called 529 plans that parents can parents or anybody can pay into other people's college tuition prior to them going to school. I think they're completely underutilized and I think that corporations should start using them as like massive incentive programs for students um, so they could actually create loyalty to their products if they would pay into people's 529s. I think that can happen and I think that there's huge loan consolidation that needs to happen. A lot of these college loans you can't even get out of them and you get penalized if you pay them down early, which is just a joke. Um, and I think we have to fix that. So foster care, college debt, continue to work on the sexual exploitation of children issue that I work on through uh, Thorn, which is wearethorn.org. Anybody wants to get involved, welcome to help. And um, and then I want to direct a movie. That's the other thing I want to do. So that's my bucket list for the next 10 years. 10 years. Keep it pretty busy. And do you have any, any routines, morning, afternoon, or evening that kind of just helps you? check off these bucket list things? I don't look at my email until I write my goals down for the day. That's my number one secret weapon. I always feel like your email is everybody else's to-do list for you. And so then once you get done doing everybody else's to-do list for you, it's really hard to get your to-do list done. So I always uh, write down my goals before I look at any emails. I make sure that I exercise at least like three or four times a week because if I'm not healthy and capable, it's really hard to sort of take on the workload. I don't think you should take meetings unless you have agendas. I think it's a waste of time otherwise. So ensuring that you have strong agendas for any meetings that you're taking. And then I believe that you should chase your passions and your purpose and make sure that the things that you're doing align to your passion and purpose and then learn how to say no to the things that don't. So if I think it's one of the, I was actually listening to uh, Ray Dalio on the Tim Ferriss show this morning. 
And the one question I wanted Tim to ask him is like, how do you say no? Like, what's your tactic for saying no? And because so often people who are successful are yes people and that's what makes them successful. But most successful people also know how to say no and they have a process around how they say no because there are so many opportunities that you start to get where you have people approaching you and asking you for help with this and asking you for help with that. My dad always said, if you want something done, give it to somebody who's busy and you'll have a better chance of getting it done than giving it to somebody who's not. But And I find that to be true because a lot of people ask for things, but if they don't align with your purpose, you have to learn how to say no. And it's really hard to do, especially if you have empathy for people and compassion for people and you want to help them. But what is your process for saying no? Step one is have your purpose defined. So if you have your purpose defined, it's very easy to almost have a a set email that you just have that you copy and paste for the first part, which is here's my purpose, dot, 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 dot. I would love to help you with whatever it is that you're working on. And I think that what you're working on merits help. But if I help you, I will not be able to execute on my purpose given my current workload. So I can connect you with someone who I think could, or I'm going to have to pass completely. And so if you sort of give people the option of there may be an opportunity to connect you with somebody that could be helpful. Sometimes they'll take that and be appreciative of it. But for the most part, so long as you can really articulate what it is that you're working on to them and people are understanding that that needs to get done as well and that this doesn't fit into that path. So how often do you say no? Would you say you say no 99% of the time or? I would say that I say no. I mean, I know I definitely say no every day. I probably say say no. Yeah, probably like 60% of the time I would say I'm saying no because I get a lot of the cold emails from people that just want me to look at something or do something. And I try to respond to all of them. And so I, I would say it's quite frequent. Got it. One thing um, Naval Ravikant from Angelus told us um, a few months ago is he's doing double opt-in email responses. If someone wants a request for his time, he'll write the email response, wait a day, and then ask himself, "Is this? do I want to say yes to this? Double opt-in yeses, I guess. Um, which I thought was interesting. If you're really clear about what it is that you're trying to accomplish, and gone bit, right? Like, like that's, that's kind of the prerequisite to all of us. If you're not doing anything, just say yes, for Christ's sakes. If you are doing something, and you're really clear, and you've decided that you're going to go big and like take on real big problems you can't possibly say yes to everything you're you're going to be saturated but if you know what it is that you want to say yes to and this doesn't align with that then the answer is probably no well again thank you ashton for taking the time i know we're a bit over it's all cool man appreciate your time and i appreciate you thinking about me for this all good awesome man thank you Thank you once again for listening. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode with Ashton Kutcher. Thank you, Ashton, once again for coming on the show. It was great listening to him talk about the transition from one industry to another, the invaluable lessons he learned from working with the best entrepreneurs and investors, his beliefs on the impact that autonomous vehicles will have on the economy, and even sharing his personal life with his teenage years. That was a great reflective insight. You can find all of these links in the description. You can also follow your host, Corey Levy, on Twitter at Corey. And we have new episodes coming out every Tuesday, so stay tuned. Thank you once again for listening and we'll see you next time on Off Record.